I love coming up here and opening up my Bible and doing that with you. And uh, it's a privilege to, to come up here and, and to, I think as, as, I, as Nehemiah 8 says, to, to give the sense, have the sense of what God is saying to us, that we would hear Him speak from His Word. And I know He wants to do great things, amazing things in us and through us for His glory. And um, this is the first Sunday of the new year. And a lot of new things are happening in a lot of people's lives. I mean, um, some people are starting new plans and new initiatives and new, new ideas in their life, in their work, in their family, in, even in, in their spiritual life. People are doing Bible reading plans and things like that. But I thought since it was the first Sunday of the year, well, it's very appropriate for us to start something new today as a church. And so, we want to begin something new. So here's what we're going to do. We are going to begin a new chapter in the Gospel of Matthew. Huh? Thank you for whoever started that. Thank you. I'm just going along with the flow there. Um, So we are starting a new chapter in our verse-by-verse study of Matthew's Gospel. Which if you've been here for any length of time, you know we've been in for four beautiful, wonderful years. And today, we are starting a new series within the larger series of Matthew. In fact, I'm entitling this series, Seven Words, Seven Woes. Seven Words, Seven Woes. So as we go through this journey, and we're in Matthew 23, by the way. So open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 23. Now, let me explain the seven words and seven woes. Not literal words. Not seven literal words, but seven statements that Jesus makes. Seven messages, seven indictments. Seven words to and seven woes on the scribes and the Pharisees. Seven words and seven woes on false spiritual leadership. Seven things they did character traits they had that led to a lifestyle and leadership that did not please God. That's what we're going to be looking at, and it's going to be through nine weeks. And we're going to see Jesus making a really, really, really big statement. I mean, a big statement. It's more than skywriting, more than putting out an ad in in all the major newspapers, more than sending a mass text to everyone. This is a big statement that Jesus is making, and he's doing so very soon before he will go to the cross. A series of woes that we will look at, but we're not going to look at any woes today. We're not going to do that. We're going to look at the first 12 verses of Matthew 23, because before Jesus launches in on these woes in verse 13, he has a word of warning for the crowds and for his disciples. That's what we're going to look at today. So part one of seven words and seven woes, how not to be a hypocrite. I mean, what's the biggest charge, what's the biggest accusation against the church of Christ, against Christians? That we are all hypocrites. So this is going to be very applicable to us and to our lives. And and today we're going to look at how not to be a hypocrite. So stand with me, please. We're going to read Matthew 23, verses 1 through 12.
Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So practice and observe whatever they tell you, but not what they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens hard to bear. They lay them on people's shoulders And they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. For they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. And they love the place of honor at feasts. And the best seats in the synagogues. And greetings in the marketplaces. And being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi. For you have one teacher. And you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you that we have this privilege of reading and, and, and explaining and applying your word. And Lord, we pray that you would give us the sense of what you are saying to us, that we would hear you speak from your word today. And Lord, we do acknowledge that, that you want to do great things in us and through us and in our lives and our households and your church and wherever you send us in the world. So Lord, we pray now that you would have your way with us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so probably the most common accusation against Christians is that we are all hypocrites. We say we believe the Bible, but we don't obey it. We say we love everyone, but we don't show it. And, and things like that. Well, Matthew chapter 23 tells us some things about hypocrisy. It tells us some things about the origin of hypocrisy. But we don't really need to be told that, do we? We all know that we don't all practice what we preach. But we need to listen because Jesus had a very similar verdict on the scribes and the Pharisees. They said one thing, they did another. So Jesus calls them hypocrites. Hypocrisy. It's an important concept in Matthew's Gospel. It is is found like 14 times in Matthew's Gospel, half of them here in chapter 23. Hypocrite, by the way, the word doesn't show up till verse 13. We'll look at that next week. But this is the theme of the chapter. And the idea, the word hypocrite comes from the world of Greek drama. It comes from the idea of the comedy or the tragedy. And it was describing the masks that the actors would wear to dramatize certain roles. In fact, some actors played more than one role so one actor might have a happy face mask in one hand and a sad face mask in another and he would switch these masks on and off as he played these roles so that is the the origin of the concept of hypocrisy some words that are related to the word hypocrite false deceiving treacherous Deceitful, untrustworthy, insincere, double-dealing, duplicitous, two-faced. Like that villain, two-faced, Batman-hating Harvey Dent. 
good and evil whenever he wanted. Like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Those are hypocritical type words that we know. But a hypocrite doesn't practice what he preaches. A hypocrite at its root really is someone who fails to understand the grace of God. Someone who fails to understand that God is good, they fail to understand his grace, and then they fail to understand their need for God's grace. That's a hypocrite. Now, before we cross into the threshold of chapter 23 here, I want to stop for a moment, take a little, take a little time out, and, and do something for all of us, but especially if you've been with us the whole time in this study in Matthew, that you would see where we've been. I want to kind of do a, a quick review of where we've been so far in Matthew. We've gone through 22 chapters. Now, if you're, if you're new to grace and you're new to this study even, this will be good because it will give you a running start on not just landing in the middle of uh, Matthew 23, but really seeing where we've been and, and where this has been going. So let me do this. I want to give you a picture of the larger context of Matthew. So, and by the way, we have been, um, we've gone through every verse in Matthew and 22 chapters down, 6 chapters to go, 140 sermons, probably about 40 more to go. And the larger context of Matthew is all about following Jesus. If you had to boil it down to two words, it, uh, it would just be following Jesus. It's like a basic primer in the Christian life. The idea is about following the sovereign king of the universe, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what Matthew is all about. And there are, there are seven major sections in Matthew. We're in section six, by the way, when we're here in Matthew 23. And there's major themes in Matthew's gospel. Jesus Christ, the person of Jesus Christ, the, 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 the majority theme. But we see prophecy and law and the church and end times we see missions and miracles and faith and grace in matthew it is really a basic primer in christianity but let's go through the the, the seven sections the first two chapters that's the first section it's the origin of jesus it's the 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 king authoritatively introduced his background his birth his beginnings so the origin Verses 3 through 7, the gospel of the kingdom. The king authoritatively preaching. Chapters 8 through 10, the authority of the king. The king authoritatively preparing his followers for the opposition that was going to come. uh, Chapters 14 through 18, the polarization regarding the king. At this point, he is authoritatively teaching about discipleship, but people are either for him or against him. Chapters 19 through 25, kind of the spot we're in now, the triumph of grace and the end of time. Uh, The king authoritatively judging those who reject him. And then the last three chapters is the passion and resurrection of the king. The king authoritatively suffering, dying on the cross, being buried, rising from the dead. Matthew's all about following the sovereign Lord of the universe, the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, There's the origin, the gospel, the authority, the opposition, the polarization, the triumph, and the passion and resurrection of the Christ. That's where we're at, but we're in section 6 now, and and we're in Matthew 23. And Matthew 23 contains Jesus' last public sermon. This is his last public sermon. And this is not a sermon about salvation. This is not a sermon about discipleship. This is not a sermon about life in the kingdom. This is a a 
very serious and sobering message condemning false spiritual leadership. It's aimed at the scribes and Pharisees, his, his fiercest enemies. Matthew 23 is really Jesus' anti-hypocrite manifesto. The first section that we're looking at today is a word of warning. It's, it's addressed to his disciples and to the crowds, not to the scribes and Pharisees. He will get to them soon enough, but he's saying something to the larger group, and he's warning them about the others. So look at verse 1. Chapter 23 and verse 1. Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. What, did Moses have a chair that he sat in? Probably. Now, they have found in synagogues stone chairs that would have been known as the seat of Moses. It is the place where the person who was expounding and explaining the law would sit in the synagogue. But Jesus here isn't talking about a literal stone seat. What he is saying is they have put themselves in Moses' place with Moses' authority. They're basically, he's saying that among the Pharisees, the majority were those that took the authority upon themselves. When you think about the Pharisees, and there were like seven different kinds of Pharisees in that day, and what they were known for, and the things that they did, there was a very, very small minority who, who followed Christ. Amongst them, Nicodemus, most notably, and, and several others, but the majority, the overwhelming majority of Pharisees were Christ's most vocal critics and, and enemies. But the scribes and Pharisees, they were kind of like the theologians and pastors of their day. They were the explainers, they were the expounders of Moses' teaching. Now Jesus says they've taken Moses' authority, his teaching authority, his seat, Moses' seat. Meaning they viewed themselves as God's authoritative representatives. And they were self-proclaimed. I think it's why they were so infuriated by Jesus when the people heard him preaching the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 7, 29 says that they were basically astonished. They were amazed because he was teaching as one having authority and not as their scribes. He had this authority all his own because he's God. They had an authority that they had kind of presumed upon themselves. So they had presumed to sit in Moses' seat. It's like, what if you, what if you were in, lived in the Star Trek days, you know, way back when, and, and you went and sat in Captain Kirk's command chair? Or what if, you, what if you sneak into the Oval Office and sit in the Concord Presidential Office chair that sits next to the Resolute Desk? It's not our, it's not our seat to sit in. It's someone else's seat and a person in authority. It's capital A authority type of position. And Jesus is saying, they've taken Moses' spot. They've put themselves in God's place, basically. They've proclaimed themselves to be the experts. But they have no divine authority. And what did Jesus say in response to this? Did he say, don't pay attention to anything they say? Just stay away from them? No, look at verse 2. Jesus says, so practice and observe whatever they tell you. Do what they say, but not what they do. They preach, but do not practice. 
But what Jesus is doing here is he's upholding the authority of the word of God. He's saying if they're teaching the word of God, you obey it even if the teachers don't. Obey the word of God. It's authoritative. The teachers in that situation weren't. Now what does Jesus do next? Well, in verses 3 through 7, he explains to them what the scribes and Pharisees were like. The things that they, the kind of things that they did. Now the seven woes that we're going to look at in the, in the, in the coming weeks are going to get more specific but these are generalities the overview of the practices not to be copied the things you shouldn't do so it gives them basically three characteristics of religious hypocrites first is this it's in verses three and four they arrogantly create burdens and don't care to help overloaded people verse three they tie up heavy burdens hard to bear Verse 4, they lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. So they're, they've got a huge lack of grace going on here. And they're not doing what Galatians 6, 1 instructs us to do, 6, 1 through 5, where we are to bear one another's burdens. When someone is overloaded in the body of Christ, we're to bear their burden. Everyone should bear their own load, uh, Galatians 6, 5, but, but when they're overloaded, we're to step in and help. But they tied up heavy burdens hard to bear. They put them on people's shoulders. They, they imposed them on people. But they weren't willing, even with a finger, to lift the burden. Heavy loads. Well, what's the heavy load? It's the oral tradition of, of, of the rabbis. It was this distinctive feature of the Pharisaic branch of Judaism. And they thought they were going to make life more relevant, uh, the Old Testament more relevant to, to life situations. They're like, hey, you got this big sacrificial system. It's really hard to understand. Let us explain it for you. They also thought that their oral law, that stuff they came up with was of, from God. That God had inspired them to say the things they did when he hadn't. So you have these massive observ- uh, obligations that they're putting on people. They become this huge burden. And the only way to lift that burden is if they tear their system down, which they were not willing to do because they were the self-appointed authorities. The Pharisees very unlike Jesus. Now, verse 4 says that they put heavy loads on men's shoulders. So they're laying down these very hard-to-keep rules. And then they refuse to lift a finger to help. Now, that doesn't mean that they were unwilling to obey any burdensome rules, but that they refused to help those who were, who were crushed under the weight of them, that those who collapsed under their rules. The Pharisees, very unlike Jesus. Here's Jesus whose yoke is easy, whose burden is light, who promises rest. The Pharisees' teaching was doing more harm than good. So they arrogantly create burdens and don't care to help overloaded people. And number two, verse five, they are purely egotistical and appearance-oriented. Verse five, they do all their deeds to be seen by others. They make their phylacteries broad and their Fringes long. What were phylacteries? They were small leather cubicle cases containing passages of Scripture written on parchment. And they were worn, fastened either to the left arm and the forehead and worn by the adult males in the morning services. And it was their attempt to literally, to to a T, obey what the Bible said to do. Uh, Here's what God had told them. Fix these words of mine in your hearts and minds. 
Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. So they took that very literally and they put these boxes on their foreheads. But they made big ones. Like, picture a shoebox strapped to your head with duct tape. Pulling on your hair. You know, it's like, what? and, and here's the thing. They, they thought big about the box, but they forgot what was in the box. They didn't follow what the word actually said they figured i got i checked the box i got it on me now there's something else here too the the term that jesus is that jesus uses here is the only time it's used in the new testament this fight this word for phylacteries it had a pagan association it was the kind of the word amulet it was like these were good luck charms for them like i got the box on my wrist and on my forehead so god's going to keep me safe it was a very superstitious way to live much like the way people wear crosses sometimes in our day so they did this and and then they had tassels on their robes well that's what they did back then jesus had tassels on the on his robe too but they made bigger tassels on their robes so that people would think like wow you are really spiritual you got a big box on your head and your robe is like Sweeping the ground because you got all the really long tassels. Wow, you're spiritual. It's almost like those football players that put the stickers on their helmets for how many touchdowns or tackles they make. Wow, look what me, look what I did. How many home runs I hit. I got to notch my bat for how many home runs. They're applause seekers. They wanted everyone to see them. It was all self-centered. They worshiped then false gods. Because a hypocrite is really an idolater. Not worshiping the true God. Serving and worshiping themselves or other people's opinion. It's the idea of humility versus hypocrisy. So they're arrogantly creating burdens and they don't care to help overloaded people. They're purely egotistical and appearance-oriented. And number three, verses six and seven, they compete for recognition and special treatment. They had like this ongoing competition about who could get the most recognition and the best treatment. Sounds a lot like pastors. Verse 6, they love the place of honor at the feasts and the best seats in the synagogues. You know, closest to the scrolls. And verse 7, and, and greetings in the marketplace and being called rabbi by others. They love special treatment. They loved public recognition, being pointed out. Now, in that day, seating at special occasions might be like you do your dinner parties, I'm not sure, but, but the banquets required that the most important guests sit right next to the host. And then the people were seated in descending order of importance. So the least important person, the furthest away from the guest. Is that what you do at your dinner parties? You do, okay. I just was checking. Um, now, Seating in the synagogue was a little bit different, but similar. Some synagogues had stone benches that were, went along one, two, three, or four of the walls. And the most important people, the elders of the people, sat on those benches. And then they would bring in removable benches and removable mats for the rest of the populace. For the, the little peons. You know, they get to sit on the floor, but the most important people got to sit in these, on these stone benches. So there's the elders, the synagogue leaders, the synagogue administrator. They had these positions of prominence as they sat. And then the seat of Moses. 
That was where the, the explainer of the scriptures got to sit. This is like front row seats at a Laker game. This is like a luxury box at the stadium. But what they were doing is they were seeking a reputation of holiness without being holy. And it goes right along with seeking places of honor at great dinners or or the most important seats as close as possible to the law scrolls. It's kind of like when you, in class, if you're in school, you sit up front so the teacher will like you. That's not what I did. The only time I ever sat up front was because I'd be forced to pay attention. I think some of my teachers actually put me up front for that reason. I was always talking in class. Now, rabbi, they like to be called rabbi. Not a bad word. It it comes from a word meaning my master or my teacher, and it was used as a mark of respect. Jesus was called rabbi, so it wasn't a bad word. But the problem was the word became inflated far beyond its, its use. And so a rabbi status in that day was huge. It was huge. If you were called rabbi, if you were a rabbi, your disciple had to obey you without question. Your disciple couldn't walk beside you. They had to walk behind you. They would never walk in front of you, and they could never greet you first. You were in charge, large and in charge. You see, the problem was that they didn't really want to please God. That's what Jesus is saying about them. They didn't want to please God. They were glory hogs. They wanted the glory that belongs to God. No humility, just arrogance. Well, the next thing that Jesus does, verses 8 through 10, is he tells them what they're not to do. So here's what they're like. And here's how you are not to be like them. So three don'ts from Jesus. Three don'ts. Number one, verse 8, don't covet prominent position for self-glory. Don't don't covet prideful position. Don't have the, the, the goal to be in a position of strength. Verse 8, but you are not to be called rabbi, Jesus says, for you have one teacher and you are all brothers. You're all on the same level. You're, you're not to have a hierarchy. Now, if you were the disciple of a rabbi, though, you had another goal in mind. If you were the disciple of a rabbi back then, you wanted to be a rabbi someday. And at the end of your course of study, you'd become this rabbi. You'd be initiated. So you would... You would rise through the ranks. You would walk up the staircase to be a rabbi. You would basically first start out as a basic disciple and then a distinguished student. Next level, disciple associate and then disciple of the wise and then the exalted title, rabbi. With disciples studying under you. You know, it's like... uh, You've checked in at the uh, synagogue enough, the Foursquare gives you the mayor title, right? Or uh, you've got a ton of Boy Scout merit badges. Or your Xbox Live, Xbox Live achievements are just way up there. You've got the most of those. You, you're trying to get for yourself, not for somebody else. Selfish ambition. But what did Jesus say? He offered a whole nother way of discipleship. Under Jesus, a whole nother way of discipleship emerged. The disciple of Jesus would always be a disciple of Jesus. Because Jesus alone is the teacher. So first, don't covet prominent position for self-glory. 
Number two, verse nine, don't seek to be the ultimate authority for others. That's what the, that's what the scribes and the Pharisees wanted. Verse nine, call, Jesus said, call no man your father on earth. <clears throat> you have one father who is in heaven. Now, what does that mean? You can't call your dad father? Oh, he's got to call him daddy instead? What? No, it's nothing about that. You can call your dad father. It's not the problem here. Don't call anyone on earth father, Jesus says. Father is a term used to refer to esteemed patriarchs, to, to uh, spiritual fathers. It, it's, the, it's pointing to the danger of religious elitism. Spiritual father. See, in that day, the scribes and Pharisees, when they would call someone father, they were saying, you are superior to all others in a spiritual sense. And even, they would take it to the to the nth degree, and they would even say you're the, the, the source of spiritual life. So he's saying, don't. Do not be called the superior one, and do not be called the source of spiritual life for anyone. Now, Jesus brings his disciples into a unique relationship with God the Father. He is the unique son of God and, and, and we are his brothers and sisters. Scribes and Pharisees, they wanted to be the Bible answer men. They wanted to be looked at and recognized as the top authorities and even the source. Scary. So don't covet prominent position for self-glory. Don't seek to be the ultimate authority for others. And, and number three, verse 10, don't arrogantly desire to be recognized as someone significant. Recognize Christ. Acknowledge his glory. Verse 10, he says, neither be called instructors. For you have one instructor, the Christ. Jesus alone is the master, basically. Augustine said this, it is not the being seen of men that is wrong, but doing these things for the purpose of being seen of men. The problem with the hypocrite is his motivation. He does not want to be holy. He only wants to seem to be holy. He's more concerned with his reputation for righteousness than about actually becoming righteous. The approval of men matters more to him than the approval of God. See, motive is huge. Motive is huge here. It comes down to the reasons why. Being a leader is not being, is, Jesus is not forbidding being a leader or even being called a leader. He is forbidding desiring the recognition of being a leader. They coveted prominence. What we need to do is understand these prohibitions in the context of seeking self-glory rather than God's glory. It doesn't mean that you can't be called a leader. Leaders who preach the word of God faithfully are to be appreciated and loved and highly esteemed as 1 Thessalonians 5 instructs. But no one is to seek the honor. No one is to demand the honor. Godly leaders are to reject pretentious titles. So stacking the credentials up. I heard of a man that lives in Kalamazoo that had over 27 college degrees, bachelor's degrees and master's degrees and doctorate degrees. And can you imagine how many letters come after his name? I mean, we will not be having at Grace Church the most right, high, reverend, doctor, supreme potentate. There will be no kissing of the ring in the, in the church of Christ. 
verses 11 and 12. Jesus kind of sums it up. He sums up this first part, and he, before he launches in on the scribes and Pharisees, uh, these woes, these, these, these legal verdicts against them, he, he, he wants to show the appropriate way to live and serve. So, verse 11, he says, The greatest among you shall be your servant. Just like it says in Matthew 20, 28, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. The greatest among you shall be your servant. In verse 12, whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus is showing us how not to be a hypocrite. Through these whole 12 verses, he's he's showing us. The first thing, if you want to not be a hypocrite, the first thing is you've got to stay humble. You've got to stay humble and strive for godly consistency be, between what you say and what you do. If, you, if we won't be humble, God will make us humble. If we are arrogant, He will humble us. Stay humble and strive for godly consistency between what you say and what you do. You've got to know your heart. You've got to know that the, the springs of life spring from your heart. You've got you to watch over your heart with all diligence, as Proverbs says. And you've got to be dependent on God. You can't depend on yourself. You'll lead yourself astray. It's humble versus arrogant. We've got to practice what we preach. Someone might say, well, you know, I don't practice what I preach, so I'll stop preaching it. No, 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 that's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying, keep preaching it and practice it. By the way, do you know that... that Hypocrisy often starts with a somewhat right idea and, and leads to a wrong conclusion. The right idea is, hey, I'm deficient. I, I can't do this. The wrong conclusion is, I need to do something about it. I need to make myself look better. I need to put on a mask. John Calvin said, Hypocrisy can plunge the mind of a man into a dark abyss when he believes his own self-flattery instead of God's verdict. That'd be real. That'd be real. We like to have a fire in our fireplace at our house. And we use fake logs without shame. The fire is always perfect. The flame is always there. Don't have to worry about that pesky smoke. The problem is it's not real. And anyone who comes over to my house knows that those are made out of cement. They're not wood. They're not real logs. Jesus doesn't want us to be like fake logs in a gas fireplace. He wants you to be real so that you can be consumed with him and by him. Our God is a consuming fire. Don't stay fake. William Hendrickson said, A hypocrite says one thing but means something else. He pretends to do one thing but intends to do another. He's play-acting, dissembling. He is hiding his real face under a mask. Don't wear a mask. But you know, we learn. We are conditioned. We condition ourselves. And we are conditioned, I think, even in the church to come to church with a mask on. You know, I'm dying inside, but I'll put on my happy face right before I get out of the car. 
or right before I walk in the door. We got all these masks in our back pockets. We use them so well. We mask who we truly are. Stay humble. Strive for consistency between what you say and what you do. Rely upon the Holy Spirit to make you consistent. Number two, honestly and enthusiastically repent of sin. Don't just honestly do it, enthusiastically do it. Throw yourself in full bore to repentance. Love it so much that you're happy to do it. Quickly confess your sin and then quickly forgive others. What did Jesus say to the Ephesian church in the book of Revelation? Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Be running to repentance. You're either going to be contrite of heart or you're going to think you're elite. What I found is that most people want to come to me and confess other people's sins, not their own. Don't confess other people's sins. Confess yours. You're not the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is a better Holy Spirit than we will ever be. We'll never be that. That's idolatry. Be quick to do it. Be honest about who you really are and what you're really like. You know, Stephen Charnock said, it's, it's a sad thing to be Christians at a supper, heathens in our shops, and devils in our closets. Repent quickly. Keep short accounts with God and man. But at this point, I want to make a distinction. I want to make a distinction between hypocrites and sinners. R.C. Sproul said it this way. I like the way he said it. The charge that the church is full of hypocrites is manifestly false. Though no Christian achieves the full measure of sanctification in this life, we all struggle with ongoing sin, but that does not justify the verdict of hypocrisy. A hypocrite is someone who does things he claims he does not do. Outside observers of the Christian church see people who profess to be Christians and observe that they sin. Since they see sin in the lives of Christians, they rush to the judgment that therefore these people are hypocrites. But for a Christian, to simply demonstrate that he is a sinner does not convict him of hypocrisy. Now, if a person claims to be without sin and then sins, they're a hypocrite. But like I've said before, everyone is either a Judas or a Peter. A Judas or a Peter. Judas was a capital H hypocrite. At its root, the idea of a capital H, H hypocrite is an unbeliever, not saved. Uh, but Peter was a sinner who sometimes committed the sin of hypocrisy. That's what I am. I'm a sinner who sometimes commits the sin of hypocrisy. That's what most of you are. Sinners who sometimes commit the sin of hypocrisy. Judas was outside the family. He was a son of perdition. He was not a true son of God by faith. He never received Christ. Peter was an insider. Peter had full membership in the kingdom. But Peter sometimes committed the sin of hypocrisy. Galatians 2 tells us that, that Paul actually called him out on it. Peter was afraid of the Jews. He was afraid of the Judaizers. And he pretended to be something he wasn't. And even Barnabas was kind of swept away in their hypocrisy. And, and Paul, in front of everyone, called him out on it. If you're a capital H hypocrite, just repent and believe. You need the Lord Jesus Christ. Be saved. Believe in the Lord Jesus and be saved. If you're a Christian who is sinning and sometimes committing the sin of hypocrisy, you need to repent and obey. 
A true believer can be acting hypocritically without being a capital H hypocrite. Last thing. So be quick to repent. And the last thing, copy Jesus. Imitate Christ. Cling to him. Look to him. If you don't want to be a hypocrite, look to Christ. The church isn't perfect, but Jesus is. Fasten your eyes on him. He's the only one who has lived up to God's standards. He's the only one who has perfectly lived what he preached. Only in Christ can we, can we escape the, the penalty due our hypocrisy. When you're in Christ, you live in the security of God's love and you're free to peel off the masks. Become real, honest people. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you that you came in the person of Jesus Christ not to be served but to serve and to give your life as a ransom for many. Lord, forgive us that we always, seems like we're always trying to be someone else when the best version of us is the one that you are at work in to will and do your good pleasure. Lord, give us grace to stop stressing ourselves out, trying in vain to be something we're not. Lord, remake us. Your, your, your yoke is easy. Your burden is light. Lord, may we walk in your steps. May we glory in you. Lord, we, we thank you that you save us and then in Christ we have not a mask that conceals our true identity, but the new garments of a Christian, the, your righteousness, the righteousness of Christ. And we acknowledge once again that it is only by the righteousness of Christ received by faith that any of us can ever hope to stand before you. We thank you in Christ's name.